2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we are able to be in your house this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of heaven and the joy that that gives, uh, really, in all times of life. Uh, thank you for that promise. do pray that in these next few moments you'd help us to listen to your word, that you'd help us to apply it to our lives, Lord, that you'd help us to be cautious in our Christian life and our walk with you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began looking in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and we noticed in verse number 1 that the Bible clearly said the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, not just one person, not just one family, not just one tribe. The anger of the Lord was kindled against all of Israel as a whole and I tried to remind us last week that God's anger has never been kindled with the people because of their strict adherence and obedience to the word of God. That never frustrates him, that never disturbs him, that never bothers him. And so whenever the Bible says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, something that we can know with certainty is this, the anger was kindled because of their disobedience to his word. God's anger was kindled against Israel because of their disobedience. And God was going to judge Israel through the actions of David. And we noticed in verse number 1 that it said, And he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. And what I tried to show us from First Chronicles 21, the parallel portion of Scripture, uh, to this, it clearly states that it was Satan who stirred up David uh, against uh, the people of Israel to go out and to have the people numbered. And so I, I tried to show us last week that because David was not in a position where he should have been spiritually, Satan was able to manipulate him and use him to do something that he should not have done. And I tried to show us last week the number of times that Satan manipulates us and uses us really to accomplish his will because we're not in the position that we should be in, spiritually speaking. And so I said last week many times it leads to uh, immorality, it leads to a failure in, in leadership in a home, it leads to a critical spirit, it leads to gossip, it leads to so many different things. If you and I are not alert and if you and I are not paying attention to the ways of Satan and to the vices of Satan, then he will trip us up and he will cause us. And Listen, it's not, he's tempting us, but it's not his fault. But he is causing us to, to, to want to take the bait and to do things that we ought not do. And then it causes problems for everyone, and we're going to see that. I mentioned it last week. It causes problems for everyone. So we must be alert. We must be attentive to the ways of Satan and to the temptations that he would place before us. Now, Today we're going to move on and we're going to look at just a few short verses of Scripture. But before we do, I want us to think about something by way of a principle. You'll understand it more in a moment. But about five years ago, Susie and I were able to purchase our house. Many of you know the story. I'm not going to bore you with that this morning. But something you may have forgotten if you were already a homeowner at that time. But during that time when we were about to buy our house, the government was offering a first-time home buyer incentive, trying to get people to buy a home if they'd never done that before, with an $8,000 tax credit, okay? And Susie and I, because we'd never owned a home before, we talked to our uh, CPA and we said, is that something we'll be able to take advantage of? He said, yes. And so we bought this home with the understanding that we would receive an $8,000 credit in a refund to us 
And that was like saying, Kyle and Susie, here is a million dollars. $8,000 to us was humongous, still is. But nonetheless, it was even more to us back then. And so here's what happened. We uh, did our taxes. The CPA was going to file them for us. And then if you've ever looked online when you filed your taxes, the IRS will tell you your projected refund date is this day. So I got on there. The accountant said all the paperwork was done. The IRS said you should receive your refund by this date. So what did Susie and I start doing? We started spending money. We started doing things around the house. We started remodeling our bathroom because it was in desperate need of remodeling. We began doing this and we began doing this. All with the idea and the understanding the money will be here by the time these bills come due. I never dreamed. Why I didn't dream, I don't know. But I never dreamed that there would be a hang-up in the paperwork. I never dreamed that the IRS would contest what my CPA had submitted. I never dreamed that the IRS would refuse to give us that $8,000 credit. I never dreamed that they would say, you're not getting it. And so there I was with the bathroom remodeled and some other things done around the house that needed to take place, and I was broke. Not a penny really left for anything of this nature. So here we are contesting this with the IRS. We're submitting new paperwork. We're submitting new paperwork. We're submitting new paperwork. And in the midst of all this, our hot water heater goes out, just completely rust out. We go out one day, and there's water all over the garage floor. And I'm thinking, we're broke. But I don't like cold showers. So we got to do something. So I scraped up $400, borrowed it from a friend, and was able to get the uh, hot water heater repaired. And so finally we're able to not, not relax, but we're able to breathe again. And then the air conditioner goes out. And I don't know, but I would suspect you've had a feeling something like this at some point in your life. This could not have come at a worse time. This is the worst possible time for this. If, if this had happened six months ago, it would have been fantastic because the previous owner would have had to have taken care of this. If this could have just happened in six months, maybe we could have had all these other issues resolved. And so here we were, we were, you know, arguing with the IRS about what we believed they owed us and everything like that. And, and then the water heater and then the air conditioner. You know what it's like, don't you? Just that overall frustration, that overall irritation, maybe that anger, maybe that disappointment, that discouragement. But just this simple realization, not now. Not now. Some other time, but I don't want it to be now. Have you ever felt that way? Like, why did the sewer have to stop up right before all the company came over? Why did the oven have to quit Thanksgiving morning? Why? Not now. But it stirs up a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions and a lot of thoughts inside of us. Now, this morning, just hold on to that thought. And again, we'll get to it by way of principle in a few moments. But to remember that David has commissioned Joab and other men to go out and number the people of Israel. He wanted a census taken so that he would know the number of people in Israel. Now, we remember in verse number 3 that Joab said 
Basically, David, don't do this. In verse number 3, Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God, and unto the people, how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of the Lord the king may see it. But why doth my Lord the king delight in this thing? Joab is saying, David, this is not when you should be doing this. This is not of the Lord. David, don't do it. But David would not hear of it. Correct? Let's listen to this. David would not hear of the warning of Joab to not number the people. And so here's what we discover in verse number 8. It says, So when they had gone through the land, through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. So once David commissioned Joab and other men to go out and to take a census to get a number of the people of Israel from the time it began to the time that it ended, nine months and 20 days. Typical government work, correct? A long, drawn-out process to find the number of people living in the, in the land of Israel. So nine months and 20 days have passed. And in verse number 9, we understand that Joab comes back with the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So in verse number 9, after nine months and 20 days of the census being taken, Joab comes back and says, All right, David, here's the report. Here's how many men you have. Here's what this represents by way of population of the people of Israel. And it would seem at the conclusion of verse number 9 that David is satisfied. David knows what the number is. And in the mind and in the heart of David, David can go back to his normal routine, his normal activity, and go about his daily life. However, in verse number 11, we read this statement. For when David was up in the morning... The word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying. Here's what we understand by way of context and by way of the flow of the scripture, that in verse number 9, as Joab gives a report of the population of the nation of Israel, in verse number 11, the next morning, here's what happened. The Lord came to the prophet, the man of God, uh, his name being Gad, David's seer. What does it mean to be a seer? It means this, to be a man of wisdom or a man of insight. There's nothing weird about this. There's nothing mystical about this. It's not anything strange or odd that the Scripture is speaking of. This was simply a man of God who had been blessed by God with some wisdom and with some insight. And here's what God is going to do. He is going to send Gad to David with a very simple, clear message. Look in verse number 12 what that message is. It says, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. Now here's what Gad is going to tell David. David, you've sinned. David, you have, you have not done right by God. You've not done what you were supposed to do. And so he says, here are your options. It's not many times that God gives the people options as to what the punishment will be. But in this situation, God gave them options. So in verse number 13, what's he say? He says... So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him 
that sent me. David, here's what you've done. You have sinned. And God is going to judge the nation of Israel, not only because of your sin, but because of the sins of the nation. But you are the final straw. So here are the options for the nation of Israel. You can have seven years of famine. You can have three months of your enemies pursuing you, or you can endure three days of pestilence at the hand of God. So in verse number 14, and David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. What is he saying? He is saying this, I'm not in a good position right now. This is not the position that I want to be in. So he says, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. And so here's what David says. Of my options, here's what I'd prefer. I would prefer to fall into the hands of a merciful God. I don't want to fall into the hands of my enemies for the next three months. I don't want to have to endure a famine for the next seven years. That's not what I want to do. I want to fall into the hands of a loving and merciful God. God. And David, under the circumstances, made the best choice possible. But I want us to understand something, that in verse number 10, we actually get the response of David to Gad's words before we get the words of Gad given to us. So notice what it says in verse number 10. This is after the confrontation of Gad to David. It says in verse number 10, and David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. David's heart smote him. What does it mean when it says that David's heart smote him? It meant this. His heart afflicted him or affected him or stricken him. It's kind of like this idea. As soon as Gad confronted David, David knew in his heart immediately, I've sinned. David knew immediately, I've done wrong. As soon as Gad confronted David, as soon as Gad said to David, listen, here are your options, David's heart immediately was smitten or smote, and he knew, I have done wrong. What else does David say? It says, And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly. I have greatly missed the mark. I have completely violated God's word for my life. I have completely done that which I should not have done. I didn't just kind of get off base. I didn't just kind of get off track. I didn't just kind of mess up. No, he says, I have sinned greatly. In the last part of the verse, notice what he says. I have done very foolishly. What does it mean to do something very foolishly? It means this, I've done something stupid. There's nothing else to call it. There's nothing else that you can say. Not only have I sinned, this was stupid of me. So here David is. His heart is broken. He realizes I have sinned greatly. And he says, I have done foolishly. And notice what it says also in the verse. He says, I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servants, of thy servant. I beseech thee. I beg thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity. What does it mean to take away the iniquity? David is asking for forgiveness for that which he has done. I have sinned. I have done foolishly, very foolishly. And Lord, I am beseeching you. I am begging you. Please, God, take away the iniquity. Forgive me, God, for what I've done. 
Now, I want us to think about David's response to the words of Gad for just a couple of moments because here's what I think some people would do. I think some people would say David had the proper response in this situation. And what I mean by that is this. Some people would look at this and say, okay, whenever Gad came to David and David was confronted with his sin, David had the right response in having his heart smote by the confrontation. Just make sense? I mean, because think about the flip side of it. What if Gad had come to David and explained that he had sinned, that he had done wrong, and David really wasn't bothered by it? Well, that would not have been the right response. If David had basically said, Gad, go bug off. You know, just you know, forget about it. Don't bother me with you and your little Bible message or whatever it may be. We would look at David and say, man, what a, what a terrible response. If Gad had come to David with this message of sin and disobedience to God, if, if David had responded in any way other than admitting his sin, we'd say, David, what's your problem? You've clearly sinned. You've clearly done what you're not supposed to have done. If David had not admitted his sin, we'd be critical of him. Had David not admitted he had done something stupid, we'd say, David... What is this then? If this isn't foolishness, if this isn't ignorance, if this isn't stupidity in the, in the making, I mean, listen, if that's not what it was, then what is it? And if David had not repented, we'd say, man, his heart is hardened. If David hadn't been willing to cry out to the Lord and say, O oh Lord, take away the iniquity of the people, I beseech thee, had he not been willing to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness, I mean, we would have said, David, what is your problem? So here's David, and his heart is smote, and, and he says, I've sinned greatly, I've done very foolishly, and I'm begging you, O oh Lord, take away the iniquity. And we say, that was the right response. Can I give us something this morning to consider that maybe seem a little out of place or a little odd at first, but just, just follow this through? David's heart and David's attitude and his remorse and his regret and everything that we read in verse number 10 came at the absolute worst time possible. Think about this. His brokenness, his humility, his desire to be right before God. Everything that we read in verse number 10, it came at the absolute worst time in David's life. Why? Because the deed had already been done. The sin had already taken place. Think about this. David's desire right now to be right with God, oh, that's wonderful, that's the way it's supposed to be. No, he had a chance when Joab confronted him to get his heart right. But David wasn't interested. Whenever Joab said, hey, listen, I don't think this is a good idea. May the Lord bless you a hundredfold. But, but, but David, why are we doing this? Listen, that was the time for David to want to get his heart right with God. 
For nine months and 20 days, the men were out gathering the census. During that time, his heart could have smote him. During that time, he could have been convicted of his sin. During that time, he could have said, Oh my goodness, I, I see the error of my way. Get out there and stop the men and bring them in before this goes any further. During that nine months and 20 days, something could have happened. But no, David just went on about his way, letting it continue on. And even after Joab brought back the report, the report of the census... David could have been of a different heart and of a different spirit. But from what we can tell, as soon as the report was given, David went on about his business and David went on about his life with no real thought of what he had done until the next morning when David was up and Gad the seer, the prophet, the man of God, was in his presence saying, Choose one of these three options because judgment's about to fall. See, here's why it was the absolute worst time in David's life to get this right. Because the sin had already been committed and the consequence was now already on its way. When would the best time have been for David to get his heart right? Whenever he was confronted at the very beginning, nine months ago. But see, here's what happens in verse number 15. So the Lord set a pestilence unto Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, and there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba. How many men? 70,000 men. In a nation of a couple million people, we're not talking of hundreds of millions of people, we're talking of a nation of a handful of a million of people. In three days, 70,000 men died because of the pestilence sent upon the nation by the Lord. 70,000 men. Our nation knows nothing of that kind of death in that amount of time. Our minds cannot comprehend it. Our minds cannot grasp that amount of death in that amount of time in a single nation of a people. Talk about some pain. Talk about some frustration. Talk about some disappointment. Talk about some discouragement. Talk about some regret. Talk about all these emotions and these feelings that you and I have felt when certain things happen at just the wrong time in our life. Imagine what David felt like because now for the rest of his life, he'll get to carry with him the burden of this truth that because I allowed Satan to manipulate me, because I allowed Satan to use me and get to me whenever I wasn't where I was supposed to be in my spiritual life, for over nine months, I went about my daily life not really caring about what the Lord wanted for my life, what I was doing in the nation of Israel. And as a result of all this, 70,000 people will die in part because of my leadership, my broken heart, and my desire to be made right with God and my repentant spirit. Oh, it came. It just came at the wrong time. paying attention you can probably see where this is headed but to go back to last week's message how many times has Satan got to us uh, multiple times 
He's gotten to us in our marriages. He's gotten to us in our churches. He's gotten to us in our jobs. He's gotten to us in relationships outside of marriage and church and work. I mean, Satan has, Satan has, has, has had his way with us many, many times because spiritually speaking, we're not in a good position and we're not where we're supposed to be. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I know that this has at least happened to a couple of us, and that is this. Many times before sin takes place in a person's life, God's tried to get their attention. Many times... There have been times that before something took place in a person's life, a particular message was preached from the pulpit of the church. Just sounding a warning, saying, don't do this. This isn't a good idea. This wouldn't be best for you. Many times it's not the Sunday or the, the, the Sunday sermon, but sometimes it's a Sunday school lesson. Sometimes it's the friend who, who's a trusted advisor saying, hey, I wouldn't do this if I were you, but, but no. We're just going to go ahead and do it. Many times in a person's life, I mean, they're about to do something that, that shouldn't be done, and, and, and the warning has been given, and, and the warning was violated, and, and there always seems to be a little bit of, a, a, of slow response by way of punishment or consequence for the sin. And many times, here's what happens in, in a person's life. They, they go about their daily life thinking, no big deal what I've done. Nothing's caught up with me yet. No real pain, no real consequence. The Joab of my life was just overly concerned about nothing. You know, that's just kind of the nature of my Joab. He gets worked up over things that really he ought not get worked up with. He says things that he probably shouldn't say. You know, after all, I'm the king of my little life and I know what I'm doing. How many times... Have we been a, a, just right there on the edge of doing something we know we ought not do? And God gives a warning. God gives a message. God gives a messenger. God gives something by way of, uh, of, of a sound of, hey, don't do this. But we do it anyway. And we continue on as though nothing will happen because, as I've said before, to this point nothing has happened. And then all of a sudden, the bottom falls out. And it's then that our heart is smitten. It's at that time we're saying, wow, I've sinned. I've sinned. I've done very foolishly. And now we're crying out to God, saying, Oh God, oh Lord, I beseech thee, take away the iniquity of thy servant. God, please forgive me. Listen, that's all good and that's all fine and it's, it's appropriate. But here's the problem. That attitude and that heart for us came at the wrong time. It came at the worst time possible. Why? Because our sin has already then been committed 
We've already messed up here, and we've already messed up here, and we've already hurt people here, and we've already violated trust here, and we've already, you know, ruined things here. And it's like, okay, now I want to get things right. Yeah, here's the problem. I'm glad you have a heart to get things right now, but it would have been so much better if you'd had this heart and this spirit and this attitude weeks before, months before, years before. Someone says, well, well, Pastor, I mean, it sounds like you're saying it's a bad idea to make things right. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to make things right. It's a good thing to make things right. But what I'm trying to show us this morning is this. It would be far better if we never made the mistake than if we made it and then got forgiveness for it because, well, we didn't want to do what we knew we weren't supposed to do or, or we didn't want to do that which we were warned against. And, and I'm, I'm just saying, there's a much better time in life to have a sensitive heart toward the things of God. There's a much better time in life to have a, a brokenness before God and a humble spirit before God. And it's not after the sin. It's before the sin. And so many times we're like David and we fail to see this until after the fact. We go along in our arrogance. We go along in our carefree spirit. We go along with this, this attitude of, I can do whatever I want because I can. And it's not until he pulls the rug out from under us that we realize, I've sinned. I've done foolishly. God, forgive me. And this morning... I know every one of us at some point have been in David's position. We have been. I mean, we dealt with this Wednesday night. If a man were to suggest he has not sinned, he's deceiving himself and he's calling God a liar, and that's not a good position to be in itself. I know that every one of us have been in David's position, but we don't have to be there again unless we want to be and unless we choose to be. And here's what would be terrible, and I mean this, it would be terrible if there were people in here this morning who would listen to a simple message like this today and basically walk away with this thought or with this mentality. Eh, I can pretty much do what I want to do. I can pretty much live how I want to live. I mean, it was a good sermon, Brother Kyle. I understand what you're saying, but... I, I, listen, I, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do, and we're going to keep living the way that we want to live. And, and, and listen, I, I know what you're saying, and I'm sure that you've seen some examples of what you're talking about, but, but I, I know what I'm doing, and I'll be fine, and I'll be okay. It would be a terrible position for people to be in this morning to walk away with that same hard heart, that same arrogant spirit that David displayed in verse number 3. We do not want to wait till the cards crumble before we decide to make things right with God. And so there are probably some in here this morning who, to borrow from another cliche idea, some of you are playing with fire right now. 
Right now, it's kind of exciting. Right now, some of it's kind of fun. Right now, some of it's kind of enjoyable. And, and, and your heart and your attitude and your spirit isn't what it should be toward God, toward the things of God, a sensitivity towards sin, etc. Just know if you don't get your heart right, if you don't take care of things when you need to, you will get burned. Nobody avoids it. You can either get your heart right before the consequence or after the consequence, but one way or the other, God will get our attention. And the absolute worst time is after, when there's a consequence to be had, punishment to deal with, and the pain and the regret to live with. Let's all stand this morning and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you'd use this message to help all of us. But there may be some, especially this morning, who are in a position in their